You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, the people of Spain have spoken, but what have they said? My guests, Daniela Pelled and James Boyce, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the return from holidays of the US Congress and the resulting return to headlines of impeachment conjecture, one of the greatest of all the Brexit mysteries, i.e. the Labour Party's policy on the subject, and has Russia been issuing beluga whales? with a license to krill. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and James Boys, US Policy Analyst and author most recently of Clinton's War on Terror. Welcome both. And we will start in Spain, which amid the turbulence of its present politics is weirdly displaying remarkable consistency, which is to say that the country's third election in four years appears to have returned the governing Socialist Party and incumbent Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, coalition building permitting. What has changed is a significant result for the newish far-right party Vox, who, in the manner of similar quacking yahoos elsewhere, are against pretty much everything, but seem especially agitated by migration, multiculturalism, and what they refer to as radical feminism. Um, Daniela, first of all, do we understand what it is about radical feminism that Vox are so exercised by? Well, speaking as a radical feminist myself... That's, that's why I asked. Indeed, indeed. I think it's probably women... Really? really? Yes. I think it's women, women doing things like working and not expecting to be sexually harassed in the workplace. So the, um, the question they have put to the Spanish electorate is basically women, really? Yes or no. <laughs> I think that they are, in general, across the board, what they're doing is they're capitalising on this whole it, things have gone too far mm. mood, which is very easy to do because you don't actually have to uh, bring any particular facts or figures. I mean, it's not about so much about migration, even though Spain has experienced, you know, issues as elsewhere in Europe um, in recent years. And it's not about uh, Catalonia so much, although that has been super divisive. It's more this pervasive feel- feeling that things have gone too far and no one is speaking out about it. I am not... I mean, they've done much better this time than they have done, than they did uh, um, in the last elections. But uh, I, what's encouraging, I think, is that they have... The, the right is now split basically between the the extreme right, they're fairly righty and they're sort of like centre-right. And uh, if you support left-wing politics, and that I think uh, that's a good thing, it's concerning that they got so much of the vote but I'm not sure that the consequences are so far-reaching. Uh, we will come to the the centre-leftish government getting re-elected, which is, lest we forget, the actual big story here. But, uh, James, as Daniela points out, Vox have won 10% of the vote, and that is in itself attracting a lot of headlines around the world, possibly due to Spain's relatively recent history with this kind of thing. But is that really, that aside, that big a deal? Because basically anywhere in the world, really, if you set up a basic unregenerate ratbag party, you're going to get 10% of the vote. 
It's possible. Uh, I think what's interesting, and I think in many ways this conversation and this topic sort of begins a narrative that might well continue through some of the topics we're going to talk about later on through the program. The idea of the the demise of the centre-right and the emergence of something further to the right of that. Uh, in many ways, I think, enc- encompassing what might be thought of as a, as a know-nothing conservatism, a reactionary against, um, as, as, uh, as was rightly pointed out, this sense that things have gone too far. You know, you can look at... Uh, some of the narrative that Donald Trump has come out with, for example, and the way in which um, something I've long held to be thought to be true, which is that what happens in the US eventually percolates its way around the world for good and for bad. I think we're seeing examples of that across mainland Europe, for example, uh, and in uh, in other areas. And I think that what you're seeing here potentially is, you know, uh, a group which is, can take its lead in part from this sort of Trump um, sort of sense concepts of we don't need to worry about facts, we can just go upon emotion. Uh, and as you rightly point out, whenever you get uh, uh, enough money behind a group like that, they are going to attract a certain percentage. And, and it can be enough to tip an election uh, in a close run call. Uh, Daniela, is then the real story here that a reasonably sensible centre leftish government has won an election, has indeed been returned? That would be no story. You can't expect journalists to write that. <laughs> no, I think one of the reasons why this is getting so much attention is the fact that Spain has, to a, 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 a more or less, uh, managed to avoid the populist trend that has been sweeping Europe, where you have seen the rise of the of the far right and all these really, really unsavoury figures. And so this is for the first time really has seen a significant spike. And I don't know why I'm feeling so optimistic about it. This is very uncharacteristic, but I uh, I think that this has been a victory for the left in Spain. And I don't think that it represents much more than, uh, as you said, the fact that you know, if, if you build it, they will come. There is this uh, party that has allowed people to express anger, really, I think. And whether they can translate that into longer term political gains is, I think it's fairly unlikely. And it's quite clear that the opposition is not going to be them. And the opposition is not going to ally with them. It's going to be a centre right opposition, which is, uh, which is legitimate, I think. Uh, James, with all due respect to the fact that all national electorates have their own peculiarities, and Mm -hmm. Spain, of course, has the peculiarity of a portion, or at least a portion of the people in a portion of Spain trying not to be part of Spain anymore. And there's some suggestion that Vox's vote could have been a rejection of the Catalan Union independence movement. But if we look at what has been accomplished by the socialists, is there something there that centre-leftish parties elsewhere in Europe or indeed in the United States could actually learn from? It's possible. I think an awful lot of attempts to quell what might be thought of as the rise of the far right across Europe will have an awful lot to do with the particular kind of electoral system that uh, varies from country to country. I mean, you were talking there very much about the idea that every nation has its own sort of political ideology and and groupings, but also that goes to play with regard to the actual political system. So here in the UK, for example, we were just talking before we came on air, the idea that we have by and large a binary system in this this country, Labour Party and the Conservative Party, and I apologise to anyone out there who might still be voting Liberal Democrat, but the idea that if you do have a um, a winner-takes-all system where you do have two main competing parties, as you do in many nations, then the ability to hijack one of those two main parties by the, the far right in this case uh, is somewhat quashed. And it's often where you have this idea of um, uh, other nations, places like Italy, for example, where you have this large um, history of, uh, of coalition group building come together that you could perhaps face a greater threat, I think, uh, from that kind of an organization.
Okay, well, there'll be more on Spain's election on the daily at 2200 tonight. But for the moment, we will move along and look at Washington, D.C., which is welcoming back lawmakers from their Easter break today. It remains to be seen how much actual lawmaking they'll be doing. However, as it seems likely that what will seem for the next several hundred years, we will be dealing with a news agenda dominated by responses to the Mueller report, a redacted version of which was released a couple of weeks back and which even between the blocks of Sharpie Inc. is clearly very far from the gleaming exoneration that President Donald Trump has been claiming. The key question facing the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives in particular is whether to attempt the impeachment of the president. James, first of all, basically, should they? Well, if you were going straight along the lines of, does the Mueller report appear to suggest that impeachable offences have occurred... Uh, and therefore the president should be impeached? Arguably, yes. The problem is, is that the I word is getting thrown around like confetti at a cheap wedding, and most people don't understand quite what it means. Impeaching a president does not guarantee or mean he's removed from office. Indeed not. It is merely, should we try the president in the House of Representatives for committing what we believe to be impeachable offences before sending it to the Senate, where that would then sit as a judge and jury, effectively, and decide whether to remove him from office. At the moment, therefore, it's very clear that the House of Representatives, controlled by the Democrats, could, quite frankly, impeach Donald Trump for anything at any time. However, I think Nancy Pelosi has made the calculation based upon political reality that the Republican-controlled Senate is never going to remove Donald Trump from office, much as the Democrats would not have done 20 years ago with Bill Clinton. Ergo, what's the point? We're only going to basically muddy the waters and they are playing a long game, I think, and hoping that they can defeat him in the election of 2020. Daniela, on the subject of what's the point, um, and obviously what James says is completely correct, that barring something seismic occurring. There are not the numbers in the Republican-controlled Senate to convict Donald Trump and remove him from office. Would it nevertheless be important, perhaps, as a, not necessarily just a symbolic gesture, but a historical one, to enable an America of the future to be able to recall this moment and go, well, at least one party tried to do something about this? Would it actually be a good thing for the Democrats to put in the bank? So 10, 20 years from now, when doubtless we learn even more about the circus currently occurring at the White House, the Democratic Party will be able to say, one, we told you so, and two, we tried to do something about it. Well, I think the better uh, result would be for the Democratic Party to make uh, ensure a Democratic candidate becomes the next president of the United States. Or that. Yeah, or that. Or that. Because... I, I agree that the process of impeachment is is highly technical. And in the same way, people, uh, when they're angry with world leaders, say they should be indicted for war crimes because they've done bad things. They also seem to be saying, well, Donald Trump is is clearly not a very good president. He's incompetent and he may have colluded. Uh, We just generally don't like him, so he should be impeached. But as with the war crimes, it doesn't work that way. Uh, What will it achieve? You have to work within the realms of the possible. And... Like Brexit, this uh, discussion about it is going to suck all the energy out of any political debate. And so I think ahead of, look, it's not even looking that far into the future. The, ne- the elections are in 18 months' time. The, uh, the discussion should be about America and the direction and the changes that are going to be made rather than is this a technical possibility and what, how much does the report uh, damn him? And can this all, all this be done even in the time left remaining? Well, there is there also the argument, James, that 
a, a legitimate concern, tactically at least, uh, if not morally, of the Democrats might be that Donald Trump would be delighted by an impeachment fight. Because for the reasons you point out, he knows ultimately he's not going to lose it. Uh, he massively enjoys a row. It would play completely into his, you know, paranoid deep state, they're all out to get me, I can't govern and nothing that's going wrong is my fault thing. Is, is that a reasonable reservation of the Democrats to have, that we would just be doing him a massive favour? Nancy Pelosi said it quite nicely. He's not worth it. You know, the whole shtick there, quite frankly, is is if we give him the oxygen of this, we are playing right into his hands. I completely agree with what your 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 question uh, earlier on about, you know, well, someone should do something for moral political reasons. However, I think that um, I think the Democrats are taking um, a historic view. They're looking back to 1998 and realizing that they will say that they paid a heavy price in the 2000 election and perhaps played into the Republican Party hands by uh, uh, you know uh, the way that the Republicans basically floundered with that with that uh, impeachment of Bill Clinton, and uh, uh, I don't know whether that's true or not. I think it's a misreading of history, quite frankly. But there is, I think, too many people who believe that by impeaching Bill Clinton, sorry Donald Trump, you get Hillary Clinton as president. And of course, that isn't the case. You get Mike Pence as president, and to many people's thinking, that actually might be worse than Donald Trump as president because he is an ideologically driven individual, and whereas Donald Trump, frankly, is not. Donald Trump believes in Donald Trump and Mike Pence believes in a whole host of other issues, many of which I think on the left might be far more abhorrent uh, to the Democratic Party and to the wider base in the United States. Daniela, is it your sense that the release of the Mueller report, or at least the version of it we have so far seen, has actually changed anything? Because I'm not sure, apart from a few Baroque details, we now know anything that we didn't know or couldn't have guessed. And I find it very hard to imagine it changing the mind one way or the other of a single voter. Well, I think that the the, um, the proof of that, and I agree, is that the way that um, Donald Trump managed to to pitch it as a complete vindication, and it's quite hard. And and, and yet also an underhanded witch hunt. Well, exactly, <laughs> but it's quite hard. It's, I think it would be quite hard for the average person to say, "Oh, wait a second, no, it isn't, and this is why." It's not like the televised hearings where there's a narrative that you can follow. And I'm not. It's not a question of maligning the American public's political. Uh, understanding, but this oh, is <laughs> that would be so easy. That would be so easy. No, no, that would be unfair. Uh, no, in general, it's it's quite hard for people to say. Well, here's a heavy, heavily redacted, extremely lengthy report looking at all these arcane uh, incidents and so on. There isn't a narrative that's easy to follow, and uh, it hasn't. His opponents have not been able to use it in in a dramatic way, and I think that's what we need now. Uh, Donald Trump has used this very easily to say, look, again, they're trying to get me and I won't give up and I'll, and I'll win. And that's the only narrative, really, that he needs to proceed with uh, to have his base continue to support him. Uh, James, is it imaginable that the eventual release of the unredacted complete Mueller report, if and when that occurs, might actually move the needle that lurking beneath all those blacked out paragraphs, there is something so comprehensively appalling that even the Republican Party at this point, however far in the tank for Trump they are, decide, actually, you know what, that's it. I think we need to be careful here. The report was not anything like as redacted as many people thought it could have been. It certainly was redacted, but it certainly wasn't as heavily redacted as many people thought it could have been. The genius uh, that the administration put in place was allowing the Attorney General to get out ahead of the game before the release to give his own report effectively, not only in the four-letter, four-page letter that came out, but then on the day of the release to sort of talk about what was going to be in the report, etc., etc., etc. I, at this point, am, am disinclined to believe 
believe that there is anything in the report that will cause any senior senators in the Republican Party to come out against the president. When you look at what it is, for example, that Senator Lindsey Graham has said in the last 24 hours, his whole attitude is, I don't care what's in it. It's done. The Mueller report is finished. We need to move on. Now, this is the guy who 20 years ago was screaming blue murder at Bill Clinton for obstructing justice, all of which, of course, is an easily identifiable uh, um, uh, situation that one could level at Donald Trump. So I think that the Republican Party are quite happily to put uh, their head in the sand, ignore the facts that have come out of this report and say, you know what, we are not going to impeach the president, which is why Pelosi is not moving forward. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with James Boys and Daniela Pellet. Coming up next, we will have a crack at figuring out what the UK, UK's rather Labour Party wants to do about Brexit, after which we'll be nailing custard to the ceiling. Do come in. Monocle's May issue is our design special, here to help you choose the elements that will make your residence feel like a perfect home. In our review of the very best in class in the design industry, we drop into EF's brand new colourful headquarters, catch some time with busy city builder Winnie Mass and hitch a ride on a Bauhaus bus. Elsewhere in the issue, we spend a day with Spain's Guardia Civil to make sense of the role of the country's oldest police force when nationalism is a heated topic. And we also ponder if it's all engines go for electric mobility. In our property survey, we chart the world's most interesting developments from Sydney to Ho Chi Minh City and find out a great recipe for co-living. In the culture section, we finally come clean and admit that sometimes it really is okay to judge a book by its cover, especially if it was created by one of the world's best jacket designers. Also in the issue, we meet the entrepreneurs churning out new ideas for Melbourne's vintage milk bars and stay the night in a neoclassical palazzo. Monocle's May issue is on Newsounds now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are James Boyce and Daniela Pelled. The imminent month of May will offer British voters two opportunities to vent their pent-up spleens at the country's political parties. On Thursday, local elections in England and Northern Ireland uh, take place, and much more amusingly, on May 23rd, there are elections to the European Parliament, just short, of course, of the third anniversary of the UK voting to stop electing representatives to the European Parliament, all of which may serve to force the UK's opposition Labour Party Party to do something it has thus far assiduously avoided, i.e. stating definitively and unambiguously what its position on Brexit even is. The party is supposed to draft an EU election manifesto tomorrow, which will doubtless go absolutely swimmingly. Um, Daniel, first of all, and just to establish a baseline here, do you actually know, or indeed does anybody, uh, what Labour's position on Brexit right now is? Uh, no and no. Okay. I can't be more definitive than that. And, and no one, no one ever has done. No one knows anyone who has or has met anyone. Um, James, are they being? Because this is always then the question that gets asked: Is is this some cunning game of twenty-seven dimensional chess that Labour is playing here? And I, I, I mean, you have to kind of acknowledge that they do have a difficulty in that they have an enormously pro-Remain membership, um, but they also have quite a large cohort of pro-Leave voters and quite a large cohort of pro-Leave leaders. Well, congratulations, you've also just described the Conservative Party as well, <laughs> which is the main problem. And we, again, we were talking about this before we came on, on air. The great challenge now is that both the two main parties in this country, Labour and the Conservative, are fundamentally split between 
the base in the country, especially in England, um, who voted over, uh, in many parts in, uh, in majority to leave the European Union and a parliamentary party and a hierarchy who are all intents and purposes want to remain. And how on earth you, you, you square that circle has clearly been the great challenge which we've been facing over the last three years. And I think the problem is, is that but because they're in, in government, obviously, this has been played out as and, and critiqued as, oh, this is a problem of the Conservative Party's making and this is all churned out because the Conservative Party can't get their act together. Well, quite frankly, neither can Labour. And if Labour could get their act together, the Conservatives would be in a far greater state than they are at the moment electorally, I think, a greater threat. And it's probably, I think, because there is that dilemma about what on earth the Labour Party can and should do moving forward. Let's be honest about it. There's a split between the deputy leader and the leader at this point, it seems, between the Home Secretary and the, and the other members of the uh, the Shadow Cabinet. We've seen individuals leaving both parties to form uh, a group that has one name one day and one name the next, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, we are in a, a, a really dynamic time in British politics and no one knows what on earth is going to happen next. It's exciting, isn't it? It is. Uh, exciting is one word to describe it. I mean, I wouldn't call it um, 27th dimensional chess. However, I think this ambiguity is in Labour's interest. I think they've been playing on it. Uh, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is quite clearly a Brexiteer, in, he tried to keep that ambiguity, uh, has enabled lots of uh, Remainy uh, Corbynites to say, well, you know, to, to equivocate and say, well, you know, he's just being fair and he's looking at... Uh, 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 what people what people feel, and right now I don't think the battle is about um, the Brexit or the referendum. I think it's a battle between the loyalists who uh, Corbyn Corbynite loyalists who want to herald a general election because they feel that the glorious leader will be able to seize control, and others who want uh, a more should we say nuanced approach to uh, the future of this country. So. It's, it, it's again, it's become another division within the Labour Party for people to beat each other up about. James, would there be, and I know they're not going to do it unless something very, very peculiar happens mm-hmm. at these conversations tomorrow, but would there be any political cost to Labour at this point saying, look, we've had three years to work on this. It's not gone terrifically well. Uh, I think we can probably agree as a nation that this wasn't a terribly bright idea. We are now the party of a second referendum and we would campaign for Remain. If Labour were to say that, and I know that they're not going to, but if they did, would there be a political cost for, to that? Or might it actually work for them? If, if Labour came out and said now we're in favour of Remain, explain to me how that isn't going to be a betrayal of so many um, Labour Party cap members who went out and voted to leave the European Union when they were presented the opportunity to do so. In other words, it's the exact same dilemma the Conservatives would be in if they turned around and said, hey, you know what? We fundamentally at a parliamentary level don't believe in this. We're going to scrap this because it's proved too difficult over the last three years. I think it's a very, very difficult dilemma for any politician who's in power at the moment to go back to the electorate and say, we gave you the chance, you voted, it's proven too complicated to initiate. Ergo, we're going to basically either cancel um, the, the, the withdrawal process or have another vote in the hope that, quite frankly, you go away and behave yourselves and vote to stay within this glorious union. Um, I, I do enjoy concluding Brexit-related conversations by, by asking the participants to, to take a punt on what's actually going to happen, just so we can... We're going to play all these back and embarrass you at the Christmas party. <laughs> uh, but the deadline has already moved twice. It's now at October 31st. So I'll ask you first, Daniela, on, on November 1st, will uh-huh. the UK... Uh, 
still be in the EU or not? Well, well, well we don't really care because of all the zombies that will be uh, roaming the streets and eating our brains. Where, where, sorry, where, where, <laughs> Game of Thrones. When does the zombies thing happen? Oh, does, had no one told you? No. Okay, well, wait till after the European uh, parliamentary okay. elections. No, I think it's quite likely that we will be. Um, based on nothing. In or out? Uh, we will be in, we'll okay. be in, based on nothing but the fact that the process is tedious and ongoing and no one can decide. Uh, James, in or out on November the in. 1st? In, still. Uh, I've long believed that the people who are going to be most disappointed by the long-term results of this are those people who went out and thought, by voting we will actually get to leave this organisation. And I think that's increasingly looking very difficult to foresee at this point. So, Daniela, just finally, we should mention that the cross-party talks between the, the government and the Labour Party have resumed today. We, we don't know yet what the fruits of those deliberations are, but you would not describe yourself as an optimist? No, can I take a punt and say that won't, nothing will, will happen? <laughs> I mean, look, it would solve everything if they could say, right, we're just going to have an agreement, I'll agree on this and I'll give up on that, and then we won't have to talk about second referendum and so on. But, you know, May and Corbyn haven't even met, and... Uh, I think this is just, it's beyond the realms of, uh, of likelihood. OK, well, and finally, and this is an and finally, where the United States has the Navy SEALs, Russia appears to have weaponised whales. Bemused Norwegian fisherfolk have reported being pestered by a white beluga whale wearing a harness, which proved, upon closer inspection, to bear the inscription Equipment of St Petersburg, despite the fact that this sounds exactly like the sort of stunt Russia would pull if it was trying to wind everyone up about using whales as military reconnaissance operatives, is it possible that this is actually what Russia is doing? See, this, uh, James, I'll ask you first. This, this is what I suspect about a lot of this kind of thing. I, 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 I think it's just people having a bit of a lark, basically. I, I think the Russians, who are, who are, despite popular caricature and not a people without a sense of humour, know that this is exactly the sort of stunt that they think people suspect them of. So they've just thought, screw it. I heard this and I couldn't see the poor voice of it. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I, you set a real low bar uh, to try to clear, I, quite I, frankly, I, I, and I, I think I might have just done it. I, I, um, I, I did, and I think you may have. Thank does, you, does, sir. does anybody else have any whale-related jokes they want to get off their chest at uh, this uh, point? Don't look, but, don't look at this. Don't look at this. Before we attempt to have a conversation about it, seriously, any, any, anybody, anything else? It's almost time for the final tuner, isn't it? Uh, uh, anyway, um, I, I, but I, I do wonder about this. I do wonder, Daniela, if this is some sort of meta operation by. Russia's intelligence services, because if you were actually seriously sending a whale into enemy waters as a reconnaissance operative, you wouldn't make you would make sure the harness that it was wearing, for example, did not have the inscription "Equipment of St Petersburg" written on it. It's a bit of a giveaway. Oh, quite the reverse. What's the point of having spy <laughs> whales unless people know you have spy whales? I mean, I would shout about it. No, I mean, for Russia, this is a win-win. Like the, their supporters will be like, "Yeah, whale espionage," and other people will think. Oh, this is scary. And other people will say, oh, no, don't be ridiculous. It's just a Western plot. And meanwhile, we're all talking about uh, Russian spies, which makes the Russian spy uh, network seem rather uh, seem rather good. I mean, they're not really too worried about plausibility when it comes to talking about the, the height of spires and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, the thing is, James, it, it is documented that 
Russia and other countries have, with varying degrees of success, used dolphins and seals and whales in in military roles. So and donkeys and donkeys um, and squirrels. So we will come back to that shortly, Daniela. So it's it's not beyond the realm of possibility entirely, is it? It isn't. Uh, in fact, there have been many protests against the idea that uh, national security agencies have used uh, you know uh, aquatic uh, animals and fish and mammals generally to to try to uh, engage in uh, in in subterfuge and, uh, and espionage. But uh, as you rightly point out, you would imagine that if you're going to do that, you wouldn't basically stamp made in Russia all over it. Although, <laughs> although I remind you that, you know, when, when the U-2 aircraft was shot down during the height of the Cold War, for example, when Gary Powers was flying it, it was carrying clearly def- defined American technology and, and, and signage, despite the fact that Eisenhower said it was a weather balloon. So, you know, this idea that uh, these agencies are not quite as smart as sometimes they like to perceive is, uh, is certainly something we should recognise. Uh, Daniela, as as foreshadowed a, a few seconds ago, we we should revisit the tale of the Mossad squirrels. Uh, did, did did we ever get to the bottom of this? This was an accusation Iran made, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, but why leave it at squirrels? I mean, there, there is a whole subgenre of Israeli espionage animals. Uh, there are countless, countless stories. We've had squirrels, uh, ravens, eagles, all kinds of fish, rats as well, uh, insects. I mean, this is. Uh, this is. Do we know if any of this has ever actually happened? Well, like James said, you know, sometimes uh, national intelligence agencies aren't as great as as they're made out to be. Um, I would like to think this was. I would like. Who doesn't want to believe in an espionage squirrel? But I have a feeling that mostly when you find migratory birds with the University of Tel Aviv tagged <laughs> onto their leg. <laughs> It's much more sort of dull academic purposes. <laughs> See, I, 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 the reason I doubt the Mossad squirrel story, which did do the rounds a few years ago, it was something Iran seemed weirdly convinced about. There's quite a lot of them in my garden. They just strike me as fundamentally unreliable. <laughs> Maybe it's no accident they're in your garden. (laughs) Maybe that's what they want me to think. Um, That paranoid thought does bring us to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellard and James Boyce, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Culture Show. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.